What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Alan Gannett is the founder and CEO of TrackMaven, a marketing insights platform whose clients have included Microsoft, Marriott, Saks Fifth Avenue, Home Depot, Aetna, Honda, and GE. He has been on the 30 under 30 list for both Inc. and Forbes. Alan is a contributor for FastCompany.com, where he writes on the intersection of technology and human nature. His new book, The Creative Curve, overturns the mythology around the creative genius and reveals the science and secrets behind achieving breakout commercial success in any field. Get ready to learn about the creative process of some of the world's most successful today on What Got You There. One of the newest sponsors of the podcast and one of my favorite brands right now is Viore Clothing. Viore is the perfect performance apparel for anyone who loves yoga, surfing, hiking, being active, or in the weight room. They combine innovative fabrics with cool finishes that really feel good and are great for the environment. I would head over to vioriclothing.com. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com to receive 25% off. Yes, that's 25% off your first order. Use discount code WGYT. And if at any point you're not satisfied with the purchase, send it back. That's 25% off your order with 100% satisfaction guaranteed at vioriclothing.com. If you're like me and love to travel, then listen up. Are you looking to get outside your comfort zone in 2018? Are you tired of the monotony of your nine to five job with no adventure? Do you wanna connect with new people on Epic Adventures? If so, then Globekick is what you're looking for. Globekick is redefining travel for the millennial generation. Globekick knows that memorable travel is built on the quality of the experience you have and the people you connect with along the way. That's why their members can choose from curated travel experiences throughout the year with like-minded people. Unlike other travel providers, Globekick members get to know each other through a private social network before choosing when and where they travel together. In 2018, they've teamed up with partners around the world to feature a Sahara Desert camping trip out of Morocco in May, a boating journey through the San Blas Islands in the Caribbean in August, and a volunteering trip to an elephant sanctuary outside of Cambodia in December. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then head to globekick.com and enter WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. That's globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. Alan Gannett, welcome to What Got You There. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Sean. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, no, very excited for this. Uh, you're you're a fascinated person. You are very busy being the CEO of Track Maven and now a new author. So congratulations on that. I know the book's coming out June 12th. What's that like writing your first book? Oh, it's so weird, especially when you write a book about creating hits. Like there's a little <laughs> bit of pressure. Um, and so it's kind of meta, but no, it's a lot of fun. And I think it's interesting when you finish the book, you feel like you sort of like, there's like a checkbox that got checked. Like, okay, I did it. It's a very clear finishing point. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely recommend it. It's a good, it's a fun academic exercise. Yeah. So the new book, The Creative Curve. So after today's talk, are all the listeners going to be a little bit more creative? Um, obviously. And there we go. That's where we're going to get them. <laughs> that's why they're listening, right? Well, to start off, I want to know, what's your definition of creative? So in academics, there's two different definitions of creativity, and I think we often get them mixed up. So there's what academics call lowercase c creativity and uppercase c creativity. So lowercase c creativity is just like creating something new and you know, literally creating. 
And this is what we sometimes get confused on because really when we talk about creativity as something we aspire to, what we're really talking about is capital C creativity. And this is creating stuff that people actually like. That's actually very different because to create something that people like, there's a whole other set of considerations. So um, you know, academics have come to the definition for capital C creativity, which is the ability to create things that are both novel and valuable, novel and valuable. And the reason why the and is so interesting is that value is a subjective thing. For something to be valuable, we have to agree it's valuable. So there's a whole sort of social construct to creativity that often goes overlooked. And so when people are sort of baffled by how creativity works and why some people are deemed creative and others are not, usually they're forgetting the fact that creativity is a social construct. I mean, this is a pretty big topic to tackle. What, I mean, what inspired you to even begin to start writing about this? Oh, dude, I'm like a stubborn kid from New Jersey. And so I was just got frustrated because people kept telling me about how they're not creative enough. And I was like, I had read enough about sort of the creativity research and creativity world to know that like, it's actually not true. Creativity is a learnable, nurturable skill, something you can actually get better at. And so um, I just got frustrated and I started giving a talk about some of the truth behind creativity and debunking some of the myths. And the talk went, did really well. This was like early, early 2015. That just sort of spiraled from there. And so here we are, what is it, th almost three and a half years later, and now there's a book about it. Yeah, I mean, congratulations on the release for that. And I mean, you mentioned this is a learned skill. So I mean, are there some certain actionable takeaways the listeners can implement into their lives to, to really oh start being more creative? Yeah, so many. So what I did for the book is there's sort of two main research tracks. So one was academic. I interviewed all of the living, great creative um, creativity and talent development um, academics that are out there. Like I talked to like all the big names, which was really cool. And then I also interviewed about um, 25 living creative geniuses. So these are people like Pasek and Paul, the songwriting duo behind Dear Evan Hansen, La La Land, and The Greatest Showman, um, billionaires like David Rubenstein, you know, startup people like Alexis Ohanian, Kevin Ryan. And so from these interviews, what I realized was that there's these recurring things that they did to actually enhance their creativity. So in the book, the first half of the book is debunking this sort of inspiration myth of creativity. And the second half is explaining four things you can do, um, the science of why these things work, and stories of people doing them of things you can actually do to be more creative. So one of the ones I think um, is so interesting to me is that you know we talk about creators as people who are focused on doing Right. There's this social media meme that's kind of annoying. That's like, um, you know, 90% of people consume, 9% of people engage, 1% create, hashtag hustle. <laughs> and it's like so dumb, not only because it's just silly, but also because it's not actually what the science says, but the science actually says, and what you see when you actually look at the lives of great creators, is that it turns out that consumption is actually a huge part of the creative process. And it's not consumption like know a little bit about everything, it's actually very, very narrow, very, very deep consumption. Because it turns out that the people who are most creative also have the best familiarity with their audience. They know what their audience has already experienced, what will be new to them, what will be fresh, what will be stale. And so it turns out that consumption is one of the key things you can do, somewhat counterintuitively. I mean, what does this consumption look like? Because, I mean, there's yeah. certain tasks like driving that people have obviously done for thousands of hours, and they might not be NASCAR drivers. Yeah, so one of the interesting things with this consumption is, 
you know, a lot of us watch a lot of movies, but we're not, you know, creative geniuses. And so what you find that's so interesting is that these great creatives, how they consume is actually very different. It's much more like physical. It's much more interactive. It's, it's basically imitation. What they do is when they're consuming a piece of creative work, they're studying the structure of how it's put together, right? I talk in the book about how Ben Franklin learned how to become a great writer. And he literally describes um, in his autobiography how when he was 18, he took articles from The Spectator, which was one of his favorite magazines, and he literally outlined how did they build their argument. Did it start with a quote? Did it start with a detail? Did it start with an anecdote? And from there, he actually learned, okay, this is the format of great creative work, of great arguments. I'm going to learn that and use that as the jumping off point for me. So what you find is that they do this much more, this is much more tangible type of consumption. Um, Kurt Vonnegut at one point attempted to get a master's thesis in anthropology. He eventually gave up because he says, uh, quote, I didn't realize how stupid primitive people were, unquote. <laughs> but, um, you know, the thing that's so interesting is that for his attempted thesis, what he did is he actually took you know, great novels, and he mapped out the story arcs of the novels. Did they start positive and go to negative and go back to positive again? Did they go negative and then more negative? And he actually outlined, he found these four recurring patterns of stories, these four recurring patterns of stories that drove these novels. And that was one of his foundational experiences as a writer. And so over and over again, you see that the best creators aren't actually obsessed with being innovative or novel or new. They're obsessed with creating the right blend of the familiar and the novel. They're okay using structures and formulas and frameworks because they know that their job is not to create something so radically new that it scares the audience, but something that's just the right level of new. So, I mean, how have you implemented this then? I mean, understanding, are you looking at consumption differently? I'd have to imagine you are. Oh yeah, I mean, for me, for me, I mean, you know, writing the book, there was definitely a lot of sort of meta experiences. So, for example, when I was drafting the book, I realized that my chapter endings weren't really good. So I started just going through, you know, famous business books and seeing how they ended the chapters and looking at that really intently to see the different ways you can do it. And I found some ways that I really liked, and then I was able to use that as a baseline for my own and being able to enhance that. But it's also interesting writing a book that's sort of on learning because it definitely has given me confidence on the ability to learn more broadly. And so next year, my goal, which is a little silly, is I'm, um, I want to become a paid stand-up comedian. So I want to do at least one show that is paid. Because I think stand-up comedy is one of these things that seems so impossible and organic. But um, you know, I interviewed a stand-up comedian for the book. And the thing I find when you look at stand-up comedians, they're actually some of the most practiced you know, they write their jokes for years. When you see a special, they've typically been testing out those jokes on small audiences and small comedy clubs all across the country. Every little facial tick and size all rehearsed. And so I think it's one of those things where we don't realize it, but it's actually a very intentional form of creativity. I mean, I'm so happy, happy you mentioned that. I had no idea that was your plan for next year. And I've, <laughs> I've been so fascinated by comedians recently. I've, I've been having a lot of communications. I mean, it's unbelievable the the practice, the skill, and, and their ability to go out and execute that. So I'm looking forward to seeing you do some stand-up. Dude, Sean, you have to do it too now. Yeah, I know. Look, it's it's awesome because it's something that gets you so far outside your comfort zone. Totally. So, I mean, what are you going to do then to really bring out your inner creative if you're going to be taking on this new task of being a stand-up comedian? 
Oh, I mean, so in the book, I outlined these different things. So one is just consuming a lot of jokes. I, I don't actually watch a lot of stand-up comedy, so I need to get on that. And the other one is just a lot of um, structure and like learning and you know, doing that imitation that we talked about where listen to a joke, seeing how they structure it and using that to learn what are the patterns that comedians use, what works well, what doesn't work well. Uh, and the other thing is obviously one of the things I talk about in the book is that creativity has this whole social element to it that people sometimes don't realize since creativity at the end of the day is a social construct. Well, you need other people to recognize your work as creative for it to be deemed creative. And so you have to have other people involved. You know, we have this notion of creators as, um, you know, there's Elon Musk on the cover of a magazine or there's Taylor Swift alone up on stage. But the reality is that creators have whole groups of people surrounding them that help enable it. There's obviously there's just the collaborators, the people who help them, whether it's, you know, Elon Musk has hundreds of rocket scientists or J.K. Rowling had a whole marketing team. Um but there's also people like a prominent promoter, someone who actually lends the creative, um, the creator credibility, because you need someone to actually see your work for them to judge whether or not it's creative. And so one of the common ways we do this in our culture is that people with more reputation, more credibility, tend to lend that to people younger and earlier in their careers. And so you see this with startups, with like board of advisors, you see this in music with like opening acts, um, you see this in academics with, you know, people put their research assistants as um, named authors on papers. And so this idea of sort of passing down the social recognition is actually incredibly important to that. Hmm. Did you have anyone that kind of passed down that social recognition to you? I mean, definitely with, you know, TrackMaven, I have a really great board of advisors. So, you know, we're a marketing tech company and, you know, I have some amazing people on my board. You know, one of my first senior board members was a guy who sold his marketing tech company for a billion dollars, right? And so that helped me then raise money and gave me that social credibility and then become somewhat self-fulfilling at a certain point. And so, yeah, definitely. I've always had a lot of people around me, which is ironic for an only child, so. Uh, how old are you right now? I'm 27. And what did you start track maybe in what, five, six years ago? Yeah, six years ago. So, I mean, how a guy that age, how do you go about doing that? What first sparked it? And then what were kind of some of the early action steps? Yeah, so I graduated um, college early. And so I was, I had been working. Um, so in college, I started a performance marketing company back when Facebook performance marketing was just getting off the ground and you could do some like wild stuff on there, which I guess now is all coming home to roost. And then after college, I took a role because of that as CMO of a venture backed startup. And so I was very young. Um, and the CEO had this idea that I would know something about, you know, how to use this data thing in marketing because I'd done all this performance marketing. And I learned one, I don't really like working for other people. So that's a good sort of finding about yourself. Um, but two, I also saw this opportunity where, you know, this was 2011-ish, 2012, where marketing was becoming increasingly data-driven, but most marketers don't like data. And it's really hard to use. It's really hard to get insights from. You know, you end up, if you're not careful, just spending all your time uh, building basic reports just to, you know, CYA. And so if you want to actually use data to get smarter, you have to do a whole other set of things that most people don't know or don't like doing. And so the whole idea for TrackMe was to be this sort of like outsourced left brain for marketers. And so, so yeah, so it's been, uh, what August will be six years, about 60 people work with a lot of big consumer brands like the NBA, Saks Fifth Avenue, you know, Marriott. Um, and what we do is we basically help them find patterns in their marketing data and help them figure out like, what is the science of their marketing creativity, right? What are the things that are working for them and what's not working? And how do you spend less time creating things that don't work? 
I mean, you're clearly very intelligent. What type of role does IQ have in all of this? I mean, do you have to be a genius to, to spark this creativity and be this unbelievable creative? Okay, so definitely not intelligent, but I appreciate the lie. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, this is one of the things that's so interesting about creativity is we have this, we even call them creative geniuses, but we have this notion that sort of IQ genius and creativity are intertwined. But what's actually interesting is when you look at studies, what they find is that past an IQ of 104, which is an average, basically 100 is an average, past an IQ of 104, we all have the same creative potential. So that's like billions of people. That's not, you know, a dozen or two dozen people in any generation. That's billions of people. The thing is that most people aren't very good at accessing that. And so there was another study that was really interesting. Um, Lewis Terman, who Americanized the IQ test, he was a professor at Stanford. So he called the IQ test the Stanford Binet IQ test. And he wanted to prove, because at the time, people were sort of skeptical of geniuses. They thought like they must be weird if they're that smart. And so he wanted to prove that geniuses were normal. And so he took um, thousands of school-aged children, had them do an IQ test, and then took, I think it was around 2,000 kids that had genius-level IQs. And he started sending them surveys about their life every five years. And he kind of creepily, by the way, called these kids termites, which is horrifying. <laughs> but he started sending them surveys every five years. Even after he died, his protégés kept doing it. And what's so interesting from this is when you follow children geniuses, you know, IQ geniuses throughout their entire life, they found that, well, they are pretty normal when it comes to alcoholism, suicide, divorce, depression. But they were also actually pretty normal when it came to success. In fact, among that group of people, you know, there was retail employees, mechanics. There was actually no real household names. There was no Nobel laureates that came from that group. In fact, the only two Nobel future Nobel laureates that were tested as children were two kids who didn't make the cut. And so there's this overemphasis on IQ when it comes to creativity. I think part of the problem is people don't realize that IQ is really measuring um, a very specific set of cognitive skills it's not how quote unquote smart you are. It's just how good are you at this very narrow set of skills. What about in fostering creativity in the youth today? Do you think kids are coming out in college less creative than maybe 15, 20 years ago? Oh, 100%. I mean, you see this with, think about, you know, every kindergartner is creative in kindergarten, but by the time they're in 12th grade, they're told by everyone around them that, you know, the don't, you know, don't try that. It's too risky. Don't, don't go after that dream. Don't do that. I mean, we're conditioned as a culture to avoid things that are risky. And we think creativity is risky because it seems so um, seems so sporadic. It seems so uh, unapproachable. And so as a result, we've sort of built our system to drive people into very non-creative fields. And it's actually really worrisome from a public policy perspective because as you see automation, as you see AI starting to automate away white-collar jobs, the last jobs to be automated away are going to be those creative jobs. And so there's actually a public policy reason why we have to focus on these things. I mean, I know this isn't the main focus of for you or your book, but what, what do you think people should be doing with the younger generation right now to help instill some of these creative values in them? I think one thing is that, um, you know, young kids have to learn and realize that everything is hard when it starts. You know, video games these days are designed to make the beginning easy. Like it's easy to level up in the beginning. So you get addicted to it. Skills, it's actually right the opposite. The beginning is the hardest part of it. And so that's why so many people give up because they're like, well, it's hard for me. And for some people, it's easy. And that's on me. The truth is it's not easy for anybody. 
It's just you typically don't see the hard part. Like we talk about Mozart being this child prodigy and like, come on. When he was three, his dad, who was basically a helicopter dad, basically told him like, hey, I love you, but you have to become a great musician and hired him the best music teachers in all of Europe and made this little kid practice three hours, seven days a week. So yeah, of course he became a great musician eventually. And by the way, he wasn't even self-aware when he was going through the hard part. Right. And so, so much of what we think of as quote unquote natural born talent is typically kids starting early and being forced through by parents through the hard part. And so, what we need to teach young people is that when any skill you want to tackle, it is going to be hard when you start. That is not saying you shouldn't do it. Right. It's not saying you're not going to become more passionate about it one day. I mean, one of the most amazing things you can do if you want to feel inspired on the internet, go to YouTube. Type in before and after singing lessons. And there's this whole subgenre of YouTube of people who sing, go through 12 months of singing lessons, and then sing again. And you will see, you will find it incredible. Like these are all people who you, when you hear them at first, you're like, uh, this sounds like me, right? Like I'm not someone who can ever sing. But what you see over and over again is that most people just haven't ever tried. I mean, I'm sure a lot of the listeners are familiar with Anders Ericsson and the whole theory around 10,000 hours and what Malcolm Gladwell really popularized. What, what What's your take on that? Oh, God. Uh, Sean. Um, <laughs> I so, think your response yeah. right there just kind of tells me. So, so, you know, so Anders Ericsson is this famous researcher in talent development. Um, I interviewed him for my book. And his research is the foundation for what Malcolm Gladwell called the 10,000 hours rule, which was the idea that with 10,000 hours of practice, you can become world class at anything. The problem is, well, there's a whole bunch of problems. So, and I'll give you, by the way, the punchline. Anders Ericsson gave me a quote from my book, which I put in the book, which is that Malcolm misread my paper, period. <laughs> and the issue is twofold. One, what Anders Ericsson actually wrote was that it was 10,000 hours on average across skills and across people. Some people takes more and less, and skills can take radically more or less. So, for example, Right now, becoming the world's best piano player takes about 25,000 hours. People have been trying for hundreds of years. Lots of people try. People start very young. But there's other skills. Like right now, there's like tournaments for digit memorization, which is kind of new. So like how many digits of pi can you memorize? And it takes only about 400 hours to become world-class at digit memorization. It actually used to be 80 when they first did some of these studies. And so because less people have done it, it's been around for less time. So that's, that's, the, that's the first error. It's just sort of a math problem. The second era, error and the more serious error is that Kanders Erickson, the whole entire research is about something called deliberate practice. Malcolm Gladwell never writes the word deliberate in any of, this, in any of the book outliers. And the issue is that practice and deliberate practice are very different. Practice is just driving a car on your commute every day. You know, you're practicing that. You're playing a game of basketball, right? That is practice. It's learning how to do the same thing out of muscle memory, making it rote, making it automatic, making it subconscious. Deliberate practice is all about how do you avoid that? How do you break a big skill down into very, very small increments so that you can keep consciously improving on those small things? It's the difference between playing basketball and practicing left-handed mid-court dribbling. Those are very different types of practice. And so all of the research on talent development shows that it's actually not about the number of hours of practice you've enabled, you've done. It's about the number of hours of deliberate practice. That's the biggest correlation to skill. You mentioned the 400 hours for the digit memorization. Is there some type of skill that you think that if you, if you got involved in, I mean, you mentioned stand-up comedian. Uh, is there something else though that you really think you could excel out with a, with a limited number of hours? 
Oh, I mean, I can give you a example. This sounds, I guess this is, well, you asked the question, but um, <laughs> I had about two years ago, I've always been sort of fascinated by the fact that an omelet is like, if you go talk to anyone who goes to culinary schools, like one of the hardest dishes to make. And so I was like, I want to learn how to make an omelet. Like I love breakfast. So I, I was, I basically said, I'm going to learn how to make like a fantastic omelet. Um, and it took about six months of making an omelet every single morning and being very intentional and thoughtful about it. And like my omelet recipe is like, I use one of the classic French recipes and it's very, very intricate. And dude, it's freaking delicious now. But when I started making omelets, like it was horrible. Like it was brown and terrible. I've never gone to culinary school, but now I can make an omelet that if you showed it to a chef, they'd be super impressed by it. There's never a brown spot. It's perfectly soft. It's like very, very yellow. And so, yeah, I do think like if you, if you want to work on something, deliberate practice does work on big skills and small skills. And by the way, you should learn how to make a good omelet and impresses people. Well, hey, I mean, during the six months, is there any little skills? Maybe you could tell the listeners for making a great omelet. Oh my God, the key, the key (laughs) is when you scramble the omelet, use chopsticks, not a wooden spoon. That's one of them. Uh, You also use frozen butter um, instead of that you put in the actual eggs and it melts as you're cooking it. But I mean, this is like a really like, um, really a fat, uh, recipe. Like it, it's, it's intricate. I use the recipe from, um, America's test kitchen. They have a French omelet recipe and it's like, a, it, there's actually a whole sort of internet subculture of people making fun of how intricate this recipe is, but it makes a good, damn good omelet. What are the chances we can get you to make a video and post it of on, uh, you making this omelet? Oh my God, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> all right, so, so all the research you did for this book, who's someone you interviewed that really surprised you? So I interviewed David Rubenstein, who's the co-founder of Kylar Group. He's a billionaire. He's in his 60s. He's on the board of the Kennedy Center and the Sonian. He personally donated the money to repair the Washington Monument after the earthquake. Like, just an incredible guy. Huge force of nature. One, incredibly nice and accessible. Response to emails, all that stuff. Um, but two... You know, we, we ended up sitting down and getting coffee together in a public place and just seeing how he interacted with the people around him. I mean, this is a guy who's at the top of his game and he's so damn curious. You know, he ran some people he knew. He was asking them questions. He was asking me questions. And I'm like, you know, some punk kid. And so it was just fascinating to see this guy. He was still consuming information. He still wanted more knowledge. He wasn't done. I mean, this is one of my favorite things you wrote about is just the consumption of knowledge. And it, it really reframed how I look at consuming things. I mean, what are you doing on a daily and weekly basis to really consume more things? Is it books, podcasts, interviewing these these type of people, or are there other mediums you're usually using? Yeah, so um, during the book, I was consuming huge amounts of research on um, various parts of the creativity research spectrum. So across psychology, anthropology, neuroscience, all this stuff. So I was just like literally just woofing down papers and books and all this stuff. Right now I'm on a little break from consumption because between running the company and marketing the book, I'm like, okay, no more, no more new creative products. I mean, one of the funniest things about, um, you know, writing a book is that, you know, it takes you three years to write it. And then you typically promote it for another year and so you're you're talking about the same things for four years. So your friends get really annoyed <laughs> at you. Um, but yeah, right now there isn't time to to learn anything new. But next year, stand up comedy. I'm gonna yeah. watch all the specials. <laughs> I mean, something you mentioned uh, the flow states in your book and Nihai Chi sent me high and and what he did around flow states. What's your take on flow states? Are are they a real thing? Are are people using them? Yeah, I definitely think flow states are a real thing. And I think um, there's a really great book that just came out um, by Dan Pink called When, which is all about 
timing. And it sounds kind of silly or overly simplistic, but it's actually really fascinating because he talks about how how to best program your days, your weeks, your months, and your years to be the most effective and efficient. I actually think a lot of flow has to do with timing of your day. So I'm very good at getting into flow in the morning. So when I was writing the book, I wrote it typically on Sunday mornings. And I knew like for basically two years, I went to bed early on Saturdays. I was that boring friend. I woke up at eight. I had to sit down, start writing by nine because I only had like two hours of flow typically, but it was great. Like those hours were great. And then after 11, maybe 12, I was lucky. My brain just sort of fizzled away and like, I just couldn't do it. But once I realized that, wow, those two or three hours were super impactful, I could leverage that. And so now anytime I have any more, um, and more of an intense project, I know carve out, you know, the morning that is, I'm not going to do an interview. I'm not going to do a phone call. I'm not going to do a meeting. Like that's the time where I'm going to sit down in front of a computer and like bang it out. Yeah. I mean, protecting your time just provides so many benefits long-term and also in the short term, the listeners love hearing about people's processes and their days. And you kind of mentioned one of your writing days. I'd be curious, what's a day look like for you right now? I mean, still see you oh, on track, maybe and I can only dude, imagine. <laughs> it's frenetic. I mean, uh, the days are very intense. I mean, I think people, um, you know, I think the truth is like there's people who talk on the internet about how efficient they are with their time and all the stuff. But I think the, the the truth is that if you want to do a lot of stuff, like you just get busy. So right now is a phase of my life, which is particularly busy. So, you know, I typically, I'm not an early riser. So I get to the office at nine um, and I typically will have maybe like somewhere between eight to 12 phone calls or meeting um, for work. And then I, right now, cause the, the book, I probably have, you know, two or three sort of PR related things I'm doing a day. So like an interview or, you know, writing, um, op-ed or something. And so I typically break to go home, try and go to the gym a few days a week, which I find is really important to sort of staying sharp and staying on it and not getting sort of burned out. Um, and then typically, you know, take a long walk with my dog and then do more work and go to bed around, you know, 1130 or 12 and do it all over again. Um, so it's like, it's an intense, it's an intense day, right? It's probably, um, you know, 13 ish hours of work. And you know, usually I try and stay more around like nine or 10. Um, cause I think the 13 hours is something I can do for like a month or two, but I can't do permanently. I mean, what do you do to recover? Um, so the gym is super helpful. Um, I don't work at all on Saturdays, so I'm a big Sunday worker, but Saturdays I just sleep in. Like I am a great sleeper. Um, when people ask me interviews, like, you know, what do you worry about when you sleep? I'm like, I don't like I sleep. Um, and so I try and sleep till noon. Um, and that really helps. And then when things aren't crazy, my sort of vacation schedule is once a quarter, I do a three or four day weekend. And then once a year I do like a week or 10 days off. And that to me has been a good rhythm for not feeling not going crazy, but also being able to keep up like a high momentum, you know, when you're doing a startup, like it is just a lot of work. And I think there's an objective thing there. There are people who are able to do startups and a lot less work. Um, but the sort of the prototypical case that you should expect is that, um, it's going to be a lot of work, like just physical hours. Yeah. I mean, it's good for you. I mean, it seems like you're doing a good job balancing that and really being able to figure out how you recharge your own batteries. And I think Sean, the other thing is just, you have to have a lot of fun when you're having fun. Like when I have, I mean, my version of fun is like, I have a, I have 60, 70 people over my house when I have a party, right? I like, um, and so the work hard, play hard, I think has some connotations of things that are inappropriate, which for me, it's not, it's more of just like, I'm highly social. I, you know, if I take a vacation, it's a good vacation. Um, and I think there's just an element to, if you're going to have 
a lot of uh, high intensity just stressors, you should have some very heavy de-stressors. So what's been your favorite vacation you've ever taken? Oh my God. I went to Spain and I did Barcelona, Madrid, and Mallorca. And that is just, I mean, what a country. I mean, everyone's nice. The food's amazing. Mallorca is like the most beautiful place on the planet. Um, yeah, Spain. Awesome. Yeah. 10 out of 10 must go. Great. I will definitely be checking that one out. I mean, one of the things I love about your book is some of the people you interviewed, but I'm curious. I mean, there's been so many great creative geniuses throughout history. Who is currently dead that you wish you could have interviewed in person for this book? Andy Warhol. Yeah. I mean, that guy, uh, I mean, he just really understood the social contract part of creativity, that relationship with the audience where, I mean, he would like literally phone it in. Like he would call the factory that did his screen printing, describe what he wanted screen printed. They would screen print and ship it to him. That was his art, right? He he really busts the idea of creativity as this thing where you're just like, you know, in a solo studio painting. Like he very much was this social animal. He built this thing called the factory, which was his sort of office for all his different projects. And he always had people around him milling about and he thrived off the energy. He wanted people to see what was going on. And so I just think he's a real good epitome of the of the social side of creativity. I just made a note of that. I haven't done enough research into Andy, so I'm definitely gonna have to check him out a little bit more. So that's gonna be cool to dissect and understand his process. One thing I'm curious, I mean, you mentioned you got the book coming out, obviously what you're doing uh, with your own business. What do you do during really tough times? I mean, you mentioned how you go to the gym, you kind of unwind. What about like those day-to-day stressors that you just can't really avoid? Oh, um, I mean, go to the therapist every week, right? You have to work out your mind and your, and your body. So I try and sort of just generally holistically take care of myself, go to the doctor, go to the gym, go to the therapist, eat well, um, all that stuff sort of, I think adds up over time and gives you sort of a compounding return. And then I also just know like, what are the subtle things I can do, um, if I need to like, you know, calm down. So like, I know like for me taking, I have a very silly, uh, four and a half year old Corgi, uh, follow him on Twitter at Maven, the Corgi. And he's, uh, I just love taking like a 40 minute walk with him. Right. If I'm just like had a really stressful day, I mean, he's really cute. So like people always stop on the street and want to pet him and it's a very, everyone's smiling and you know, he's a, he likes walking long distances. And so I find that's just like a very calming thing for me. Um, and then there's also a chair in my house that is like in a a bay window. That's really nice to just sit on. And so it's somewhat meditative. I used to meditate a lot. And I think there's some interview with me where I say that. And so people always ask me about meditation and I'm like, I don't do it anymore. Cause I started getting stressed out about like, cause I was like being very ardent about meditating like every morning. And so I do now that I find works much better is I just sort of meditate for, you know, a minute or two. Um, like I'll be sitting down and I'll just sort of be mindful of where I am, how my body's feeling, what's going on. And just having that sort of moment of stopping your mind is really has this like huge, um, you know, asymmetric benefit. I mean, you got to figure out what works best for you. So I just got a couple quick hit questions for you. Then we'll let you get going. What's an idea you've had in the past year that you've changed based on new research? Oh my God. Um, so many, um, idea I had in the past year that I changed based on new research. I mean, there's a lot of really fascinating research about how we tend to do abstract thinking better when we're tired. Um, and so that's something that I used to not really realize. And so now just realizing that and seeing that, um, you know, I tend to do sort of more diligent, thoughtful work in the morning and really abstract thinking at the sort of in the afternoon where I'm just a little more fuzzy. 
Hmm, that's an interesting tip. I mean, you're, you're young, you're driven, you're motivated. What's something you haven't accomplished yet? I'm sure you could just list a million things, but I really want to know what's kind of top of mind for you. Um, I'm not a big goal setter. So like I, you know, next year I want to do the stand-up comedy thing, but I don't tend to have big long-term goals. I think my goal is really to like live a really, uh, fulfilling life and like have great people around me. And I'm not really overly, uh, wedded to like a specific accomplishment. I'm more, I, I if I, the, the accomplishment to me would be enjoying the journey along the way. I mean, you mentioned surrounding yourself with great people. What's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? Oh, uh, there's, that is, I mean, there's too much to count. Um, I mean, you know, someone gave me, you know, when I was 22, invested $18 million in my business, right? And that was super meaningful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, you know, he unfortunately passed away last uh, year and a half ago. Um, But just that, you know, that was uh, really meaningful as like a very young CEO to get a big vote of confidence like that. Alan Gannett, author of The Creative Curve, CEO of Track Maven. Where can the listeners stay connected with you? Where can they pick up the book? So for the book, check out thecreativecurve.com and in bookstores everywhere. And then for me, it's just Alan, A-L-L-E-N dot X-Y-Z. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely get all that linked up in the show notes. Uh, and June 12th is the official release date of the book. So Alan, thanks so much for joining us on What Got You There and best of luck with everything you have going on. See ya. Looking to freshen up your wardrobe for the summer season? Having trouble finding a brand whose products are functionally built to move and sweat in, but designed with a casual aesthetic aimed at everyday life? Then Viore is the clothing brand you've been looking for. Viore merges technical clothing with a West Coast vibe that looks and fits great. Viore's motto is built to move in, styled for life. They have a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore has incorporated innovative fabrics that feature anti-odor finishes, moisture wicking, and quick dry finishes. My favorite being Sea Cell, which is a sustainably sourced fiber that uses a blend of algae and wood pulp to create the most comfortable shirts you've ever felt. They really are. They're incredible. They're also anti-odor and filled with vitamins and nutrients that are released when you sweat. To receive 25% off, yes, that's 25% off your order, head to vioriclothing.com. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com and use discount code W-G-Y-T. If at any point you're unsatisfied with your purchase, send it back. That's 25% off your entire order with a 100% satisfaction guaranteed. VioriClothing.com, discount code WGYT for 25% off your order. If you're like me and love to travel, then listen up. Are you looking to get outside your comfort zone in 2018? Are you tired of the monotony of your nine to five job with no adventure? Do you want to connect with new people on Epic Adventures? If so, then Globekick is what you're looking for. Globekick is redefining travel for the millennial generation. Globekick knows that memorable travel is built on the quality of the experience you have and the people you connect with along the way. That's why their members can choose from curated travel experiences throughout the year with like-minded people. Unlike other travel providers, Globekick members get to know each other through a private social network before choosing when and where they travel together. In 2018, they've teamed up with partners around the world to feature a Sahara Desert camping trip out of Morocco in May, a boating journey through the Sandblast Islands in the Caribbean in August, and a volunteering trip to an elephant sanctuary outside of Cambodia in December. 
If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then head to globekick.com and enter WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. That's globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.